Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our Relentless Sermon Series, which walks through the book of Judges and sees how God is constantly pursuing His people. We hope this episode will be an encouragement to you, and we'd love to hear how God used it in your life. Hey man, let's take our Bibles today and let's go to Judges chapter number 10. Judges chapter 10 this morning. <clears throat> Judges 10, and I... Uh, I'm thankful for last Sunday. We had a great community Sunday, had a number of guests, some back with us today, and we're thankful that you'd come back and join us again. And then also thankful for, uh, man, just the great services we had last week. Had some uh, decisions made, and so we praise the Lord for that. And then I'm thankful for the weather of last week, and uh, I'm not enjoying the weather today. How many of you, I'm not going to ask because Mike is going to raise his hand wherever he is. How many of you would rather skip fall and just go straight to winter? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Let me mark you down. And uh, <clears throat> Listen, it, yesterday I feel like we got up and went, of course, coaching football with, with the, the boys and with the kids, and I was, it, was, it was freezing out there. We were about five minutes into the game, and a few of the boys ran up. They're like, Coach, are we done yet? Can, can, can we be done? done, done? And uh, So Bill McKinney asked me if I'm being weather rebellious today because I'm not wearing a coat. Yes. I am weather rebellious. I refuse to believe that we're coming already into winter. But although it's cold outside, we can have a great spirit in here. And uh, getting back this morning into our series, uh, Relentless, it's been a great series. We've learned so much. And so we, uh, we were out of it last week. And so let me just kind of kind of get us all back on the same page with our series. Of course, the book of Judges is what we've been studying through, and we're studying the nation of Israel. And if you'll remember, the nation of Israel... Uh, their relationship with God was very precarious. Uh, you know what that means? Just very up and down. It was very unstable. It was very, the phrase that we've been given, it, it was very cyclical, right? They would follow God, not follow God, repent and, and turn to follow God, and then they just, they just kind of kept doing that cycle over and over and over again. Well, they did that especially when they came into that promised land area. All right, let's remember this. We go back to the book of Genesis. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to take you and start of you a nation, a people in a land where you can worship me and glorify me and point people to me. That was the nation of Israel. And the land was where Israel is now and much of that Middle Eastern area that God had promised to Israel. That's why those of you might have a Bible question. Why do they call it the promised land? It was a land promised to Israel would be in their inheritance. So God said, I've got a great land for you and I want you to go in and uh, possess the land and then teach people about me and, uh, and raise your kids for me. But there was a couple things that God said he wanted his people to do when they moved into the land. Number one, drive out or destroy the enemies of God, right? There were enemies, the Ammonites and the, or the uh, Amalekites and the Philistines and the Hittites, and we had all the ites and the Philistines. That's what it was. They were all living there. So God said, I want you to drive, they're enemies of God, drive them out or destroy them. The second thing God asked them to accomplish is when you get in the land, I want you to teach the next generations who I am. Man, teach your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids Teach them about the Red Sea. Teach them about the years in the wilderness. Teach them about Jericho. Teach them, and he's saying, hey, I want you to teach them about the mighty God that they serve. Isn't that, a, isn't that a good thing to do? Man, to teach God to the next generation. I was with some families this week. Myself off. I'm gonna have a struggle putting my hand in my pocket today. Give me a second. All right. We're good. <laughs> had to get there, or else I'd be just hitting that switch all day. Uh, you ever been, I was with somebody this last week, and they were like, well, you know, we don't want to push God on our kids. You know, we want to let them decide for themselves. Okay, I understand the sentiment behind that of, you know what, I don't want to be forceful, right? I'm not going to force my kids. You have to believe this. I'm going to let them make their own decisions. We all have to make our own decisions, right? But I'm not for, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to really teach it to them. Listen, I teach my kids to brush their teeth. Why? Because hygiene is good. Now, whether or not they choose to brush their teeth, that's between them. Listen, with God, we should have a desire to teach our kids God. Yes, let them choose. Yes, don't be forceful with it. 
but have the desire just to instill in them the generations to come, the things of God. That's why I love our kids' ministries at our church. Man, our clubhouse kids on, on Sundays and Thursdays, right now there's probably 15 or 20 kids downstairs with Dan and Sarah and, and probably somebody else. I don't know who the adult worker is down there today, but down there, and you know what they're doing? They're teaching truths to kids. Oh, many of you in here bring your kids to church. Some of you, your, your grandkids are, are who you bring to church. Listen, we need to keep doing that. That's God's plan for his people, and that was God's plan for Israel. Israel. I'll tell you, that's why I don't mind in, in our church services. I don't mind kids in our church services. There's some churches, they're like, you know what? You, we we got to do. Now, listen, we have nurseries and different things like that and kids' classes, but I don't mind it. You know why? I want our church family to understand we want to build a church of families, right? Why? Because God wants to build families. Man, God wants to raise up families that worship Him and glorify Him together. And that's what he wanted for the nation of Israel. So, hey, here's a couple things you need to accomplish. Drive out and destroy the enemies of God and then teach me to the generations to come. Well, the nation of Israel, they gave God what we called partial obedience. You come to the first chapter of the book of Judges and we find they didn't drive out or destroy all the inhabitants and they didn't teach their children. The Bible actually says in Judges chapter 2, verses 12 and verse number 14, that the children of Israel, when they moved into the land, they actually forsook God and there arose a generation that knew not God. So they didn't drive out or destroy the inhabitants, and they didn't teach God to their, to their children. Well, because of this, God allowed the natural consequences of their disobedience to take place in their life. Well, what was some of the natural consequences? Those enemies that were still living in the land, they began to enslave and oppress the people of God. The children that they didn't teach God to those children begin to worship the false gods of the people of the land. And those children begin to um, uh, get involved in relationships and engage in, in, uh, in uh, just all sorts of sinful actions because of the uh, uh, false god people in the land and those, those uh, enemies of God nations in the land. And so really what God allowed to happen was this, that the children of Israel, because of partial obedience, they begin to be influenced by those people and they begin to lose their relationship with God. Were they still God's people? Yes. But were they experiencing the life God wanted them to have? No. You see, God desired to be the fulfillment in their life. God desired for them to walk with him just like God desires for you. Listen, God is not interested in you checking off a list of do's and don'ts. God is interested in you and me walking with him and having a relationship with him and daily striving to love him in a greater way and build that relationship. That's what God is interested in. He was interested in it for Israel and he's still interested in it in us and for us. So that's what the book of Judges, really, that's the foundation of the book. The people of Israel, they didn't drive out the enemies. They didn't destroy the enemies. They didn't teach their kids about God. And so God allowed natural consequences to take place. But the great thing is this, Judges chapter 2, verse number 16, God never gave up on his people. Judges 2, 16, the very first word is the key word in the entire book of Judges. It's the word this, nevertheless. That's what the word is, Nevertheless. Hey, the children of Israel, they disobeyed me. They keep walking away from me. Nevertheless, I will not give up on them. Man, listen, it's gonna be a truth we're coming back to today and we'll probably come back to in just about every message in our series. Aren't you thankful God doesn't give up on us? Man, God never gives up on you. Man, that's a blessing. Hebrews says that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Listen, we need to be thankful today and understand that it is a principle in Scripture that the grace and mercy of God is relentless in our life. God pursues his people. Why? Because he desires for you to find a fulfilled life experiencing his grace and his mercy and a relationship with him. And as you and I walk with God, God says, that's what I want. But when we walk away from God, God doesn't go, fine. Now, there's times in Scripture when it seems like God's like, ah! And one of those times is today. I've, I've titled the message this morning, Here We Go Again. Have you ever had a here we go again moment? <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. Those times when maybe somebody's coming up to talk to you and you're like, oh, here we go again. Maybe your kids make a decision. You're like, ah, here we go. Maybe it's your spouse. Ah, oh, here we go again. As a youth pastor in Lakewood for four and a half years, and I was trying to think, all right, what's a story I know with Here We Go Again? The very first one popped into my mind. As a youth pastor, and we had some teenagers in our youth group that their whole family went to church, and they were, you know, like church family, but the teenagers were just 
children of the devil. I mean, they were wicked and they, and they were attitude-y and they were rude. And you know, there's times that I was just want to be like, ah, what, just do something. Yeah. Leo, where are you at? Tackle them. You know, and there'd, there'd be times when those teenagers, and, and I loved them and I wanted them to grow, but it just seemed like they just did not care. Well, the, the parents, you know, when parents have kids like that, you know, it's like the kids that the kid can do no wrong. And so those parents, when they'd come talk to me, I knew it. I knew she'd just be like, and she's just straight face, and I could see her coming. And I'm like, here we go again. And she'd come up and be like, now, why did, you know, why did this child get in trouble for this? And you need to do this, and you need to do that. I'm like, well, because your child breaks, your child brought weed on a youth trip. We don't do that. Well, no, no, they didn't. They would never do that. <sighs> what do you do with that, you know? Listen, every one of us, we've probably been in those here, here we go again moments. Like, oh, here we go. When will you learn here we go again? As you and I come to Judges chapter number 10, I find God at like a here we go again moment. Because with the children of Israel, I think God is looking at them like, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. And the challenge I want to get across to everybody, we're going to cover two chapters today, and there's, it's, some great, it's, a, it's really a great Bible study message. But the one theme I want to get through to each of us today as we wrap things up at the end is let's avoid the here we go again moments. Let's avoid the moments where God looks at us like, oh, would you get it? Don't, don't have a here we go again moment. I want you to see what I'm talking about. Stand with me if you would. Judges chapter number 10. And let's read just the first six verses of Judges chapter number 10. <clears throat> We're gonna read these verses here. <clears throat> and the verses, I'm, I apologize for not being on the screen. It just says text. There should have been verses there. That was, that's my fault. I would blame that on Robert, but it's my fault. So Judges chapter number 10, follow along in the word, if you would. Judges 10, verse 1 through 6. It says this, After Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. What a bunch of great names. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say a lot about it, but you got Tola, his dad's Pua, and his grandpa's Dodo. I'm just saying. I don't know. He was a man of Issachar, and he dwelt uh, in Shamir in Mount Ephraim, and he judged Israel 20 and 3 years and died and was buried in Shamir. And after him arose Jair, uh, a Gileadite, and judged Israel 20 and 2 years. And he had 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts, and they had 30 cities, which are called Havoth Jair, or uh, th the 30 cities of, of Jair, unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. You would say Cayman, but it's not the Cayman Islands, so we'll say Camon. Verse number six. And the children of Israel did evil. What's the next word? Again. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the god of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and served not him. Verse six again, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And they didn't just serve Balaam this time. They served Balaam, Ashtaroth, gods of the Syrians, gods of the Zidonians, gods of the Moabites, god of the Ammonites, and gods of the Philistines. They forsook their perfect God and they substituted him with seven other groups of gods. And I think God looks at this, and we're going to see in just a moment, the Lord looks at this, and he's like, here we go again. But I want you to see that even God had a here we go again moment. God still never quits on his people. We're going to be challenged this morning about this here we go again moment, learn some lessons from it. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the scripture today. Lord, we pray right now that you'd help us. We pray, Father, that you'd speak to our hearts today. I pray, Lord, that as we go through the service, God, that we would have your heart, your mind, and, Lord, that you would use the word to strengthen and challenge each of us today. And before I close my prayer, why don't you take a moment, just in the quietness of your own heart, give God permission to speak to your heart today.
Again, Lord, we just thank you for your word, and we pray that you'd bless our time, and Lord, that you'd teach us exactly what you want for us today. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. As chapter 10 opens up, I find what I'm calling this morning a welcomed time. It was a welcome time for the nation of Israel. When you go and you read those first five verses, I think any... any uh, um, Israelite during those first five verses would actually have been uh, happy and would have, have had joy. And here's why. When you open it up, you find that a man named Tola is reigning. He's the one who comes after Abimelech. Abimelech was the last judge. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Abimelech. And with Abimelech, if you were here, you'll remember we asked the question, what might have been? Because we believe that God had great plans for Abimelech, but Abimelech left God out of his decisions, and Abimelech used and took his own life, uh, took his own life a, a direction contrary to God. And because of that, because of that, God just said, "All right, Abimelech, I'm not going to force my will upon you." And the history records it for us. The Word of God does that. Abimelech, he created his own uh, his own tomb, didn't he? He was one that he he got killed by the lady upon the castle wall who dropped a millstone on his head. Remember that story? Dropped a millstone on his head, and he looked up after he's laying there, and probably sees that lady looking down, knowing she dropped the millstone, and he says to his armor bearer, lest it be said that I died because a lady dropped a millstone on my head. Thrust me through, and his armor bearer kills him. And yet it's still recorded. He was killed by a woman with a millstone. <laughs> Listen, when, we, when our actions lead us contrary to God, the results are never healthy. Okay, it wasn't healthy for Abimelech, and it's not healthy for us. God has a will and a plan and a purpose for our lives, and that starts in that relationship, loving him and growing in him. Abimelech thought he could lead his own life, and he left God out of his decisions, and the great challenge is there, and don't leave God out of your decisions. He wants to be a part of every single decision we make. Well, following Abimelech, the Lord raised up a man by the name of Tola. Tola would come, and he would reign for, I think he's the one that reigned and judged Israel for 23 years. Man, 23 years of peace, 23 years of rest, 23 years of following God is a great time, a successful time. Following him was Jair. Jair was one that he had 30 sons, and those 30 sons rode upon 30 donkeys, and they ruled 30 cities called Havoth Jair. And they ruled, I believe, that uh, uh, Jair was one that invested in his family, and he led his family well, and he reigned for, or judged for 22 years. And the scripture would lead us to believe that during those first five verses, those 45 years, that you have the people of God living in rest. You have the people of God experiencing a fulfilled relationship with God. You have the people of God understanding and growing closer to God and experiencing a relationship with him and seeing God bless and seeing God work. You have the people of God experiencing 45 years of God's plan in their life. That's what I believe the first five verses point to. Well, how do we know? Because verse six says that they did evil again in the sight of the Lord, meaning that, hey, they had not been doing evil. Now, were they sinners? Yes. But up until verse number six, from verse one to verse five, 45 years of seeing God work. You know what I see that as? I see that as a, as a welcomed time. Why? Because it was a time of peace. It was a time where under Tola, under Jair, that they were just experiencing the life that God had desired for them to experience. That's what I believe those, those 45 years were. I call this a welcome time because it would seem like they were living in that time of peace. And I don't know about you, but living in a time of peace and fulfillment is kind of a good time in life. Now, does it mean that there were no trials in those 45 years? No. Does it mean there were no conflicts in those 45 years? Well, no, we would know that to be false because the scripture tells us that from the time of them coming into the land until, uh, uh, until they, they were dispersed from the land in Nero in 72 AD, that they experienced great trials just about every year from their enemies. So we know that there was conflict. We know that there was trials. So what was so peaceful about it? Their relationship. Listen, experiencing peace and rest in our heart does not mean that there is no trials in life. It doesn't mean there's an absence of trials, an absence of conflict. It just means that in the midst of trials and in the midst of conflict, because of my relationship, I have peace with God. I have the peace of God in my life. 
Some of you here have experienced that. You've gone through some of the greatest valleys and greatest uh, trials a person could go through, and yet you know that even though your heart is saddened, even though your heart is, 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 is uh, heartbroken, and we'll talk more about it in just a second, even though you're going through a deep trial, it's like God just comes and says to you, you can trust me. And during those times, God puts his arm around you, and he strengthens you, and you find rest, and you find help, and you find strength, and you find comfort, even though everything seems to be topsy-turvy. It's my mom's term. Everything seems to be upside down, and yet you're still experiencing that rest. Listen, that's what it means to have a fulfilled relationship with the Lord, understanding that although circumstances are not what they seem, Man, God in my spirit, he's confirming in my spirit that I am his and that I can trust him and that I can walk with him. And this was the time that they were living. Uh, it was a welcomed time. They were living in this time of peace. And uh, no doubt it was them understanding God saying, this is what I want for you. You see, God doesn't want a trial-free life, but he wants us to instead to be able to be close to him through trials. And that's what they were experiencing. They were finding fulfillment in their relationship with him and experiencing that peace and that rest for 45 years. That's what we call that welcome to time. But I see secondly this morning, as you come into the next part, that you see a weary God. You see a weary God. As we move past the lives of Tola and of Jair, we find ourselves at that here we go again moment. We find it in verse number six where it says, the verse we read a few moments ago, that the children of evil, the children of evil, well, the children of Israel, they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They served Balaam and Ashtaroth. They served the gods of Syria, the gods of Zidonians, the gods of the Moabites, the gods of the Ammonites, the Philistines. They forsake God, and they replace him with literally hundreds of other gods. Here we go again. Children of Israel, ex listen, experiencing the life God wants, a healthy relationship, 45 years, not of no conflict, but of peace in the midst of conflict. And yet they turn to all of these false gods. Things went well under Tola and Jair, but when they're off the scene, Israel, here we go again. They return to this idolatry. One man said it this way. He said, it looks as if, uh, autocorrect, it looks as if the chief trade of Israel had been to import deities from all countries. They didn't add deities to God. They cast off God and brought in all the false worship of the nations around them. That's what it says. Look at verse number six. Look at the last part of it. It says that they forsook the Lord and served not the Lord. They didn't say, oh, well, we'll add these gods to our God. They said, no, we're actually turning our backs on God, and we're following after these seven different God groups. Can I ask you just a question, and this is just a thought that came to me as I was studying. Why is it that at the times when things are going well, that those are the times that a child of God most often steps away from following God? Because isn't it true that when we're going through a valley, when we're in a valley, in a trial, that's when we're like, God, I need you. But when things seem to be going well and the paychecks are there and the, the kids just seem to be kind of going, going along and, and my, my, my team's winning and my, my, my job is going okay, and I have friends at work, and, and it just kind of seems that my life, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm paying off the car, and maybe got that new boat, and we're, you know, paying the house down, and, and things are going okay. Everyone's healthy. Why is it those times that we say, God, we don't need you? Oh, I think the answer is probably pride. I think the answer is probably self-sufficiency. They can probably go down the line on the answer on that, but that's where the children of Israel are. It was a time of peace, a time of goodness, a time of fulfillment, a time of experiencing God's healthy relationship, and yet here they are forsaking the Lord. Can I just encourage you, be mindful of the times that you think things are going well. 
Be mindful to keep your guard up because those are the times the devil's coming after you. Man, you mark it down. Listen, mark it down. I say it often at our church. The devil absolutely hates you. And he will do anything to draw you away from a healthy relationship with God. Why is it the devil fight? Why is it that Sundays are the hardest day? Why is it that Sunday's the day when, you know, you get the kids ready and those are the days that they go outside and play in the mud? They didn't play in the mud the rest of the week, but Sunday morning they do. Why is it Sunday mornings come and your alarm clock doesn't go off? Why is it Sunday mornings come and you just kind of, well, you know, you just kind of go through the day and, oh man, lose track of time. Why is it Sunday mornings come along and that's the one day that the family member shows up for a family reunion? Why is it the Sundays come along and that's the one day that that friend who you haven't talked to forever is like, hey, I'm in town. Let's go for brunch at 11. And you're like, no, can we do 1230? No, no, no. I'm only in town from 11 to 1230. You've got to come then. Why is that? Why, why does that happen? Listen, that happens because, the, listen, the devil will do anything to keep you from growing in your relationship with God. He fights it. Why is your time in the Word and my time in the Word the, the one of the most critical times in the week? Every day, what is the de- why, why do we struggle with being in Scripture? Because the devil knows. He knows that if you put God first in the morning, it's probably going to help you put him first through the day. He knows that if you get in the Scripture, that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing, dividing, and asunder of his soul and spirit, that God can literally use the Word of God to shape your character and to make you become like Jesus Christ. Listen, the devil knows the Bible better than you and I. So at those good times, like Israel, the high time, the time of peace, the time of rest, everything's clicking, everything's fitting together. Put your guard up. Why? The devil's going to attack. He's coming after you. He hates your life. He hates the fact that you're in church this morning. He hates the fact that this week you want to walk with God. He hates the fact that you want to tell your coworkers about Jesus. He hates the fact that you give so that the church can keep the lights on and you give so that we can go and start churches and and support our missionaries. The devil absolutely hates that. So don't ever think that God is trying to draw you away from the house of God or that God is trying to take you out of the Bible. Listen, God says, I want a healthy relationship. The devil says, oh, you do, do you? We'll see about that. And the devil fights tooth and nail because he hates your life. He hates your children. He hates your spouse. He hates your grandkids. He hates your parents. The devil hates everything about you because you are created in the image of God and the devil can't stand God. So can I just give you a warning this morning, myself as well? When those things seem to be going well, put your guard up. He's after you. He was after Israel. They forsook the Lord. And I want you to see where we talk about a weary God. Notice verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9 tells this. It says that that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. So all the enemies, they come in and they, verse number 7 would tell us that God actually let, uh, it says that he sold them to them, that God allowed the natural consequences of their sin to take place in their life. And so now the children of Israel They were vexed and oppressed by all their enemies. 18 years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side, Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was sore distressed, sore distressed. So here's what's happening. 45 years of walking with God. Verse number six, they sin again. God, we don't need you. We're going to follow all of these gods. God says, okay, I'm not going to force my will upon you. Okay, you can make that choice. Verse seven, verse eight and nine, you know what the result is? Oppression. You know what the result is? It's not a healthy one. It's not one they were thinking about. The Bible tells us at the end of it, that the house of Ephraim, Israel was sore distressed. Sore distressed greatly oppressed and discouraged. That's what they were facing. Their decisions and their sin, it led to their destruction, led to their oppression. And now in their oppressive state, in their destructive state, they call to God. Verse 10, the children of Israel cry unto the Lord saying, we have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and served Balaam. All right, I'll give Israel a little bit of credit. They realize why they're facing their, this, this consequence. 
Man, God, we've forsaken you and we've served the false gods of Balaam. Notice that they didn't list all the other gods. So there's a little bit of repentance here. They knew that their heart had rebelled against him. It says that they cried out to the Lord. The word cried, it means uh, to shriek from anguish. It means to uh, publicly convene and say, uh, with one voice, we call out to you. So they gather together to call out to God. But this is where we see a weary, weary response. Notice, if you will, verse 11, down through verse number 14 for now. Verse number 11, it says this. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, and from the children of Ammon, from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites did oppress you? And you cried unto me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Verse 13, Yet ye have forsaken me, served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. That's a pretty tough answer, isn't it? <coughs> I, I do not have the time this morning. I wish I did. Uh, if you enjoy studying the Bible, talk to me. I'll give you some great things to study out. Verse number six, the seven people groups, okay, that, that we read in verse number six, they're serving all those false gods. You know what God does in verse number 11 and verse number 12? God says, hey, I defeated all those people groups. Uh, do, you know, do you know what God's saying? Hey, I defeated their puny gods. Hey, I defeated their false gods. Hey, I came out as stronger, and yet you chose them. So you know what, children of Israel? Here we go again, but this time, you're on your own. That's what he says. Verse 13, I'll deliver you no more. Man, I am done. Verse 13. Verse 14, um, hey, you know what you guys could do? Go cry out to those false gods. Hey, the gods of the Zidonians and the Syrians and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Philistines, hey, go cry out to them. Let them deliver you. Can I just help us understand something this morning? You know what that verse shows us? A weary God. You say, Pastor Wade, isn't our God all-knowing and all-patient and always merciful and always forgiving? Yes, we'll see that in just a second. But can I tell you something this morning? That your God and my God, he gets weary when we just have a cyclical relationship with him. He got weary with the children of Israel. He got tired of it with the children of Israel. He says to them, listen, you abuse me and continually misuse my grace. The game has to stop. Go cry out to your false gods that you're worshiping. Let them deliver you. But I love the response of the children of Israel and I have to give them some credit. Because notice verse number 15, not on the screen in your Bible. It says, The children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. You know what that tells us they did? They had a moment of complete repentance. It says they put away all the gods. They didn't just say, Hey, we're sorry for serving Balaam. It says, the children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned, do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good. There is humility. All right, God, we've sinned. We'll take that consequence. And then it says that they put away the strange gods from among them. That phrase, the strange gods, encompasses all of them. They put away all the gods and they serve the Lord. Listen, that's Repentance. Can I just help you understand something this morning? And we're going to see it in a second. You want to know what captures the heart of God in your life? Humility and repentance. Listen, it captures God's heart. Why? Because God sees you're serious. When you humble your heart and say, God, what may be, may be. It's my fault. It's on me. I turn back to you. Regardless, regardless if you come through for me or not, I still turn back to you. And that's what they did. But I want you to see the reason I call this the weary God is because of the end of verse number 16. It says this, his soul, God's soul, God's heart was grieved for the misery of Israel. The children of Israel admit their sin. They turn back to God. They beg for his mercy. And the Bible tells us that his soul, it was grieved. Can I tell you that Israel's pattern in their relationship with God was literally grieving the heart of God. The word grieve means to cut down and mourn. 
Their sin was cutting down the heart of God. It was, we would use the phrase, it was breaking the heart of God. You ever had a broken heart over something? You ever had a broken experience and a grieving heart? Maybe literally, listen, literally a time in your life when your heart hurt. I mean, when you, you really could feel within you your heart aching. If you've ever lost someone close, you've been there. If you've ever been through a deep valley, maybe with a spouse or with a, a child, or you've been through a deep health valley in your own life, you've been through something, you've probably been there. Every one of us, that place when it's just heartbroken. Well, here we find that the Lord, he was facing just that. He was facing heartbreak. He was facing a time when in his spirit, the Lord, his heart is literally breaking. But what's breaking God's heart? It's not the death of someone. It's not the loss of a friend. It's not uh, his finances crashing. It's not one of those things. Listen, you know what it is? It's because his people continue to forsake him and his people continue to walk away from him. And God says, that literally grieves or breaks my heart. And when you and I when we choose to do that which is contrary to God, and when we choose to walk away in our relationship with God, you know what we are doing? We are breaking the Father's heart. Oh, it's not a broken heart to say, listen, I want you to do this and not do this. It's a Father's heart that says, listen, I have dreams for you. I have plans for you. I have hopes for you. I love you, and I desire for you to experience the fullest life that you can if you'll walk with me. It's the heart of a God that says, I believe that you could do something great for me. I have, I have a great desire for you. And yet when we... Look here, we see God's heart is broken because his children just walk away from that. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed in the day of redemption. When you and I step back into our sin, maybe that we used to be in, or we begin to ascribe worth or worship other gods, oh, we're not gonna bow down to the false god of the Zidonians or the Moabites, but we'll bow down to the god of sports. We'll, we'll ascribe worth to the god of money. We'll allow our family to become God in our life. You know what God says? That literally breaks my heart. A weary God. Our story continues, and we'll speed up chapter 11 real quick. The Bible tells us that chapter 11, a man comes on the scene. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah was one. He was a Gileadite, so he's from the area. He's a local. Well, the Bible tells us that the children of Israel, they go and they say, you know what? If anybody will reign, will come and, and take leadership and help us, We'll go and fight the Ammonites. We'll go and take them out. Well, there was one man. His name was Jephthah. He was a man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And so the Israelites, they cast him out. They said, you're not one of us. We don't accept your life because of your family's heritage. We don't accept you. You can't be. He was a, the Bible says he was a mighty man of valor, and everybody knew it. But they kicked him out, said, Jephthah, you aren't going to be the one. So he goes, and he's gone for a little bit of time, and the Bible tells us, and I think it's uh, Judges 11, 4, maybe 5, when it says in the process of time, or just that some time passed, the Ammonites begin to oppress them more. And you know what they do? They say, hey, where's that guy Jephthah? You know what happens? Let me just tell you this real quick. When other people look at, pe when other people look at you and they see somebody that may not amount to much, God looks at you and says, I can work with that. Man, when other people look in Scripture and you look at people like a Shamgar, or you look at people like a Jephthah, or you look at people like a, a, a Gideon, you look at people that maybe seem like a nobody because of their family heritage, because they weren't much, because like Jephthah, their mom wasn't much, or their dad wasn't much, or maybe they don't even know who their dad was. They don't have a relationship with their mom. And people look at that and they say, you know, there's no hope for you. God looks at that and says, hey, I can work with that. Hey, you just be willing. I can work with that. And that's Jephthah. He comes on the scene. The Bible says that they ask him to lead. Hey, Jephthah, will you lead us into war? We see this morning a welcome time, a weary God. Knowing our story, I want you to see this third thought that I'm calling, which is a willing God. It's a willing God. <coughs> Jephthah comes on the scene. He says, all right, if I lead you, 
then you are gonna make me a ruler over you. Verse number 10, I think, Judges eleven ten. they say to him, all right, God's our witness. If you lead us and we, we defeat the Ammonites, you can be our leader. Jephthah says, all right, that's between you and the Lord. He sends word to the kings of the Ammonites. He sends word to them. And he, he says, hey, why do you keep coming up against us? And they reply. I'm just kind of, we're doing a little synopsis right here. They reply, uh, it's because 250 years ago, you guys came into this land. I love what Jephthah does. Jephthah goes in verse number, I don't know, 13 to 28. He's, he rehearses with them Israel's history. And he goes, it's so cool. You just go read it. It's awesome. Here's what he says. He says, well, you're right. We came into the land, but God told us to come into the land. So your problem's with God. Uh, number two, when we came into the land, we defeated the Philistines. We defeated the uh, Amorites. We defeated Jericho. We defeated the Moabites. We defeat, he goes through and he lists them all. And he was like, if you'll notice, your name wasn't there because you actually weren't in this land when we came in. You've since come in. That's what he gets across to him. And he tells him this, if you're so interested in this land, then the 300 years before we were here, so like in the last 500 years, why didn't you guys come conquer it then? Leave us alone. That's basically what, that's basically what Jephthah says. Verse 28, the children of Ammon send back word. No, we're not gonna leave you alone. But I want you to see verse number 29 because that's why I call this a willing God. Because verse number 29, notice what it says. The very first phrase, it says that the spirit of the Lord did what? Came upon Jephthah. Look at verse number 29. Judges eleven twenty nine. 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. In these verses, what we see taking place is Jephthah and the men of Gilead or Israel preparing for war. But in verse 29, you find God's approval. Because in verse number 29, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. You know, verse 29 tells us, you see what takes place there, is that when the Spirit of God comes upon, when it comes upon Jephthah, it is God once again saying, okay, I will work with you. Okay, I will have mercy. Okay, I will have forgiveness. Okay, I am on your side. You remember what God said in verse number 13 and 14? I will do this no more. You're grieving my heart. The people of Israel, they said, okay, we don't care if you don't do this. We're still humbling our hearts. We're still, we're still turning back to you. Jephthah begins to give credit to God. Hey, God brought us in this land. He gives glory to God. Hey, Ammonites, your, your problem is with God. Take it up with God. And verse number 29, we find God, a willing God, says, okay, I'll work with that. Hey, you're humble before me. Hey, you're repentant before me. Hey, you're giving glory to me. I'll work with that. No longer is it about you, Jephthah. No longer is it about you, Gileadites. No longer is it about you, Israel. No, now you have pushed out those other gods and you have pulled me back in. And I'm telling you that now I'm on your side. What an incredible willing God. Man, just the truth that God doesn't give up on his people. This reminds me of Judges 2.16. Nevertheless, man, here's a people that keep going away from God and God kind of says, here we go again. Come on, I've had it. And yet the people say, God, we repent. God, we're humble before you. God, we want to give the glory back to you. And God says, here I am again. I'll be merciful. I'll be forgiving. Listen, God desired for his people to look to him. And we would think, well, why would God turn back to them? Because they were his people. God does not give up on his people. Psalm 86, 15, but thou, O Lord, art full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Can I just tell you that often God is waiting for us to just get it, to get humility and understand we're humble before you, we repent and turn back to you, and God, all the glory belongs to you. But can I just tell you, as we've also been reminded that even though God is a forgiving God and a willing God, that we shouldn't abuse God's grace. It doesn't give us an excuse to sin. 
Romans 6, 1 and 2, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, since God's gracious, should we just continue in sin? That way there's more grace, more sin, more grace. Should we do that? Paul said, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And how shall we continue in there? Listen, just because God's forgiving and merciful doesn't give us a right to sin, but it does remind us that when we sin, God is forgiving and merciful. And you may be someone who you've had a time in your life when you walked away from the Lord, when you abused God's grace. Aren't you thankful God didn't give up on you? Man, I won't, I won't point out anybody, but there's people here in our, in our congregation, some that were away from the Lord for five or 10 or, or 15 or 20 years. Man, aren't you, God, aren't you glad that God just kept going on your heart's door? He kept saying, hey, come back. Hey, come back. I'm still here. Hey, I'm still here. Yes, I'm going to let natural consequences take place, but I'm still here. Why? Because you're my child. And, and though there are times when God says, okay, I'm taking my hands off right now. I'm going to let you accept the natural consequences of our sin. God never gives up on us. Why? Because even though God gets weary of our sin and we grieve God's heart, we have a willing God who says, I am ready to forgive. I am willing. I love it. I love it. But this morning, I want to end by us seeing what I'm calling a woeful vow. A woeful vow. As you come to Judges chapter 11, verse 30 through 40, it's one of the most disagreed upon passages of Scripture in the Word of God. It's one of the most scrutinized places in the Word of God. Let me briefly go through it and tell you why. The Bible tells us in verse number 30 that Jephthah, he prays. And he gives God a vow that he did not think through. The vow was simply this. All right, God, you're on our side. We're going to war uh, with the Ammonites. We're going to go. And God, if you'll give us the victory, then whatever comes out of my door to greet me first, I will offer as a burnt offering to you. Now, in Jephthah's mind, knowing the context of the passage, I believe Jephthah was referring to an animal. He's saying, God, when an animal comes out to greet me, if it's, if, you know, if it's the, the lamb or the ram or if it's this cow, whatever it is, you know, if it's a little fluffy, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to give him as a burnt offering to you. All right, well, you go, you read verse 30 through verse uh, number 33, I think, or something like that. It tells us that they go to war and God does bring victory. God brings victory. Jephthah's rejoicing. He comes home. He's excited. And the first thing out the door to greet him It's his daughter. It's his daughter. His only daughter. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us that he had no other sons and no other daughters. She comes out and she greets him. As she gets there, the Bible says that he looks at her and he says, you have grieved my heart. You have hurt my heart. You have broken my heart because I made a vow to God. And she says, dad, if you made a vow to God, you better keep it. You better keep it. So she makes a request. The request is, Dad, can I go and go in the mountains and have some time alone? Her, the phrase she uses is, can I go and bewail my virginity? That means, can I mourn that I'll never have kids? Can I mourn my virginity that I'll never know a man and I'll never have children? He says, yes, you can do that. She goes and she does that. She comes back and the Bible says this. It says that he did the vow according to his vow. He did everything according, he did according to his vow. And she knew no man. And verse 40 says that the daughters of Israel come to lament the daughter of Jephthah four days a year. So people often take that at face value, just right away. And what's it sound like he did? It sounds like he offered his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to God. That's messed up. Is that messed up? That's messed up. Now, that's the common thinking. But I'd like to present to you a different perspective. I've wrestled with this passage a lot. When I was studying for our series, Judges, when I was studying for it last year, Brother Tom, I was studying for Judges, and every time I came to Judges 11, I thought, I don't want to preach this passage. We'll just skip it. But it's in the Bible, so we better preach it a little bit. So let's study it. I want to present to you a different perspective. 
So out of Judges 11, 30 through 40, very quickly, I want to present to you the perspective that he did not kill his daughter. Instead, he dedicated her to the Lord and to the service of the tabernacle. And let me show you what I mean by this. How I came to this conclusion is based upon the wording in the passage, as well as biblical principles that we know to be true from other places in Scripture. First of all, notice some thoughts with me from other places in Scripture. Number one, we know that the Lord with Israel, he forbids murder. This was not a war time. This was not a time where that they were going against enemies of God. This would have just been murder. Well, they had the law. Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not kill. All right, there's the first thing. Number two, in many places in Scripture, the Lord actually condemns human sacrifices made to God as worship. He condemns it. With the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 12, 30 through 31, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, the gods of the false land. The land. After that, they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou uh, inquire not after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Pay attention, verse 31. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. So you're not supposed to do what they do. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hateth, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters, they have burnt in the fire to their gods. God is saying, hey, the false nations, they give burnt, burnt offerings as worship to their God. That's an abomination to Jehovah God. There's other passages. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. You can look these up and write them down. It says, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Hey, those false nations, they offer their son or daughter, they make them pass through the fire. You're not supposed to do that. 2 Kings 16.3, it says that one of the kings walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire. So here's a king that offered his children in the, uh, as a burnt offering. According to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out, from before the children of Israel. Jeremiah 19, four through five, God says, they have forsaken me. So this is now him speaking about Israel at a time in their life. They have forsaken me and they have estranged this place and have burned, lice, or burned incense in it unto other gods whom neither they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings on the Baal, which I command not, nor spake it, nor came it into my mind. God says, listen, that type of worship of a false God or of the real God, it would not even pass through my mind. All right, there's a ton more, but we don't have time to get them all. So in all those places, plus others, we find God condemning human sacrifice to worship him. But notice also a few thoughts from our passage that would lead us to believe this different perspective about Jephthah, that he actually dedicated his daughter to the service of the Lord and the work of the tabernacle. Notice that it says in verse 37, 38, 39, that she goes to bewail her virginity. That means to mourn that she'll never know a man. It does not say, say that she went to bewail her death. If you knew that you were gonna be put to death, you would be a little more sad that you're not gonna just have kids. You're gonna be like, I'm mourning that I'm gonna die. They, she would go to mourn her death, but she doesn't. She goes to mourn that she'll never have children. Remember, why would she go to mourn that she's never gonna have children? Well, if Jephthah dedicated her to the Lord and the work of the tabernacle, it would mean that she could never marry. And because of that, she would never have children. And since she could never have children, Children were seen as a great honor for women, right? Remember, Hannah wanted children. Why? Because her, uh, the other wife of, of Elkanah had children and because it was an honor for women to have children. So she's mourning that she's never going to have kids. Notice also a few of the words. <clears throat> we saw the word bewail. I want you to notice the word did in the passage. We're just doing a little Bible study. Everybody still with me? We're almost done. You still with me this morning? The word did. It means to do in the broadest sense 
and widest application. This means that he accomplished the vow in the broadest sense. What was his vow? I will offer what first comes out as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And the author of Judges says that he did that, kind of. That's what the word did means right there. It means he did it in the broadest sense and widest application. The word according, it means in a manner corresponding or conforming to. The very same word, those of you that know scripture, the very same word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 23, when it talks about Hannah dedicating Samuel to the Lord. The very same word for the word did is the very same word used in this verse. Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, do what seemeth good. Tarry until you have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. Here's what he said uh, to, to his wife in dedicating Samuel. Hey, you vowed it, so make sure you perform, you go through with it. It's the very same word, to do it in the broadest sense. Wean him and then give him to the Lord. All right, so there's those words. Well, we already talked about lamenting, mourning, but the Bible says that four days a year, the daughters come to lament the daughter of Jephthah. Many people look at the word lament and they think weep. The word lament in this passage actually means to celebrate, commemorate, or rehearse. So they celebrate what happened. They don't weep about it. They celebrate it. So if this was a negative thing that God would actually condemn, why would the children of Israel create a feast and four days a year to celebrate it. The two don't go together. So I present to you this case, that Jephthah, he didn't sacrifice his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. He offered her as a living sacrifice. He said, God, you gave me the victory. I give up that which is precious to your work. That's what he did in the passage. Let me give you a few thoughts and we're done. It's a beautiful picture because there was somebody else who offered up his child for the work of God. It was God the Father when he offered Jesus. But can I tell you, Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross, it wasn't offered up as an act of worship. It was offered up as an act of pardon. Jesus, the only perfect son of God, and he, didn't, he wasn't given he laid down his own life. He said, I lay down my life and no man, no man taketh it from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. The daughter of Jephthah, she willingly sacrificed. She, she was willing. Hey, dad, you did it. I will never know a man. I will never get married. I'll move into the tabernacle. I will serve God the rest of my days. Willingly. And as a family, they followed through with it. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But I want to tell you one more thing, and this is the quick point I want to get across with this. The reason I call it a woeful vow is because Jephthah wasn't even thinking when he offered this to the Lord. He wasn't thinking. Do you know why Jephthah made a promise to God? His promise had some stipulations on it. Hey, God, if you'll bail me out, I'll do something for you. Hey, God, if you'll get us out of this mess, I'll do something for you. Can I tell you this morning, you and I ought to be careful what we vow to God. Should we make promises to God? Yes, but we ought to think through them. I've met people, they're like this. Oh, pastor, I know there was this one wreck one time that I was about to be in a wreck and I was like, God, if you'll save me, I'll follow you forever. Well, how's that working out for you? Well, not too well. You're not keeping your vow. Sometimes we pray vows so God will bail us out of problems. Can I tell you, don't make a vow because of you wanting God to bail you out of problem. Make a vow because God's working in your heart to give something to him. Make a vow because God's working in your heart to follow him in a greater way. So be careful of the vows you commit to the Lord if he'll bail you out of your problems. All right, God, here's my vow, if you do something. <clears throat> As we come to this passage and 
we close out, I understand I went a little bit longer this morning. I apologize for the time. I just saw that. But as we wrap it up, I just want to challenge you with one thought. Everybody's going to have a here we go again moment. You know, moments where you know that you should be walking closer to the Lord, but maybe you walk contrary to him. You know what God's asking. You know what God's doing in your life, but you kind of choose your own way. Can I encourage you to make this decision today? Avoid the here we go again moments this week. Let's make a decision. God, this week, I'm not gonna go back on you. God, this week, I'm not gonna walk away from you. What got Israel in all this mess to begin with? Verse number six, they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you would like further information about our church, please visit moseslakebaptistchurch.com.